I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast features criminologists discussing sensitive themes and topics. Listener discretion is advised. A night out at the bar turns deadly when a woman meets three seemingly friendly strangers. This is the Tiffany Jenks story. Great to see you, Megan. I love your hair curly. So cute. (laughs) Thank you. You know, apparently everyone likes it curly but me, but I think that's the way it goes. You know, if you have curly hair, you don't like it, but I'm getting used to it now and I'm I'm really just lazy. So, (laughs) you know, curly hair, I can flip my hair when I get out of the shower and it's done as opposed to all the work I put into straightening it. So, well, the next time we do one of our YouTube episodes, I think you should wear it curly and let's let the listeners decide. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't be mean. If you don't like it, keep your mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. Uh, Megan, this case I found in a very interesting way. As you know, I was on vacation with my family. We went to California. I must mention while we were in California, I met one of our long-term supporters and I consider her a friend now, Andrea. Oh, yeah. We met her in Monterey and she gave us the most amazing behind-the-scenes tours of the Monterey Aquarium. She is incredible. You know her very well. She always comes to our happy hours, our book clubs, our lectures. She's so cool. She's the best. She's like one of my favorite people. I really like her. Yeah, (laughs) she's really, really cool. We met her and that's so cool. I was so jealous that you got to do that with her. Well, you should go. She said she'd be happy to do the same for you if you get out there. Yeah, it's going to be a long drive, but I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And then, Megan, on that same trip while we were in Portland, because we drove from California to Portland, while we were in Portland, I randomly got a message from a listener who suggested this case. Now, Tiffany was her friend, and this was very serendipitous timing. So it wasn't even a question for me. The listener, Erin, she's also a longtime listener. I've chatted with her a lot on Instagram. So she brought up this case. She actually lives in Portland. And while I'm in Portland, I get this message about her friend who got murdered in Portland. And I was like, all right, well, I need to do this, right? Yeah. Erin said that, quote, Tiffany was one of the most fun, outgoing people I had ever known. She'd invite me over for a mud mass, pizza, and movie nights. 
We laughed a lot. She inspired me to be a better person. She also sent me a bunch of beautiful pictures. And Tiffany was a beautiful young woman who just seems so full of life. Oh, I'm glad you chose this case then. Yes, thank you, Erin, for bringing it to our attention. All right, so let's meet Tiffany. Tiffany was born on January 19th, 1978, and she was the fifth child of six children. She had four brothers and one sister, and they lived in Oregon while Tiffany's dad pursued a master's in nuclear engineering at Oregon State University. Her dad had a job that moved him around a lot. So Tiffany lived in Pennsylvania. Then she lived in New Mexico before they moved back to Oregon and settled in the southeast area of Harney County. But Megan, they weren't there for long before Tiffany's father took a sabbatical in England and the family went along with him. How cool is that? Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. And Tiffany reportedly loved England and made a lot of friends there whom she kept in touch with as she got older. And the family then returned back to Oregon in 1991. Okay. So she's she's lucky. She's kind of all over the place in her early years here, having a lot of experiences, meeting a lot of new people. And despite this constant moving throughout her childhood, Tiffany excelled in school and she had many friends. She was also gifted outside of academics, too. She would go on to break several high school records as a track star, and she was also an accomplished viola player. Oh, wow. Tiffany would graduate high school in 1996, and she was voted most artistic and most athletic in her class. Now, Tiffany clearly had a lot going for her. She was smart, ambitious, and just seemed like an all-around great person. And Megan, her ambitions would take her far because Tiffany went to college at Portland State University on a track scholarship where she obtained her bachelor's in science in business management and marketing. And this was in 2001. And then just a year later, she obtained a master's in economics. She sounds like a fantastic young woman. Yeah. she And then she went back to school again to get another degree in physics and geology in 2004. Wow. So yeah, she's a high achiever. Mm-hmm. After completing her studies, Tiffany settled in Portland and worked as a physical scientist at the Bonville Power Administration in Portland. Now, this was a federal agency that operates in the Pacific Northwest, and they market wholesale electrical power for over 30 dams in the area. Okay. Tiffany loved this job, and she actually stayed with this company from 2001 all the way to 2012. She was really good at what she did and well-loved by those around her. As if that wasn't enough, she was also extremely active. She ran marathons and was an avid hiker, skier, and snowboarder and was very into camping. Oh, and she also played cello as an adult. I mean, how amazing does she sound? She makes me feel lazy. I know. Sadly, Tiffany's father died from brain cancer in 2010, and she had a really hard time dealing with the loss. So in 2012, when she left her job, she decided that she wanted to travel and write. Now, many people close to Tiffany say that the death of her father marked a turning point in her life. This is when she started drinking heavily and using drugs. This was probably a way for her to cope or self-medicate after this tremendous loss. Mm -hmm. Now, at one point, she did get clean and she would end up being a great help to other people that she met in sobriety. But unfortunately, as we often see in these situations, Tiffany really struggled with her addiction and she often relapsed. I just want to note that at the time of this event, she was living with her boyfriend, John Captain, and the two had been together for a little under a year. Now, I'd like to say a disclaimer that many close to Tiffany believe that John perpetuated conspiracy theories about what happened to her, including things like Tiffany being the victim of mind control by the Illuminati and that the Oregon State Police were involved in what happened to her. Now, there's no evidence at all of these claims, and those close to Tiffany have fully discredited these notions, so I don't want to spend any time on these conspiracies, and I don't want to spread false information. 
Instead, here are some of the facts we have gathered from credible sources. Okay. Based on Tiffany's obituary, we know that in the fall of 2013, Tiffany was preparing to take an extended trip. Now, she would visit her old home in England, and then she would be going to her old home in New Mexico before going off to visit Thailand. She had just gotten her belongings stored away and was saying goodbye to her Portland friends and family. At this time, she was writing a lot and working on a novel that she hoped to eventually publish. All in all, she was feeling pretty positive about her future, and many say that she was doing well and she was sober at this time. Okay. Unfortunately, one night would change everything for Tiffany. On the evening of October 7, 2013, 35-year-old Tiffany went out with some friends. Or she went out by herself. Now, the reason I say this is because it's unclear if she started the night out with some friends and then ended up continuing by herself or if she left for the night by herself. It's not entirely clear and it's not very central to the story. But do we know for a fact that she was with or did meet up with some friends at some point? We know for a fact, yes, she did not end the night alone. And we do have, um, we'll be focusing a lot on those events. Okay. So actually, I'll tell you right now, Megan, shortly after midnight, now on the 8th, Tiffany met three people. 27-year-old Daniel Brunel, 38-year-old Joshua Robinette, and 40-year-old Michelle Warden-Brosey. She met these three at Falco's Pub in southeast Portland. Surveillance footage would show Tiffany shaking hands with Michelle in a way that suggests that she was meeting these three for the first time. So we can surmise that she probably did not know these people. And in fact, we will come to learn that she did not know these people. She met them that evening. Oh. So who are these strangers? Michelle and Joshua were an engaged couple, and they were from the area. And the third gentleman, Daniel, had been Joshua's co-worker at one point, who was now living in California. So he was in Portland visiting Michelle and Joshua. Now, we don't know really anything about Michelle and Joshua's history. You know, there's no criminal history on these two. I don't even know what they did for work. So my question is, when you say go out, I'm assuming that this might be an incident where she's relapsing. She's at a bar or somewhere. Is that going to become clear as well later on? Well, it'll become as clear as it can be in just a moment. I'll give you a little more information about that. What I can tell you is that Joshua and Daniel had known each other for several years. They had worked together in California, and they had kept in touch. Now, the reason why Daniel was in town is he was allegedly purchasing a gun from Joshua. Oh, okay. This is not not great to start with unless this is somehow a legal transaction. Could be. All right. Now, why Tiffany met up with these three, we have no idea. But based on later investigative footage, we know that the three hung out at Falco's Pub for a short time And then Tiffany left with the trio and walked across the street to Club 205, which was a local strip club. Now, I don't know Tiffany well or her lifestyle, but based on the information I gathered, this seemed to be a bit out of character for her. Of course, it's possible that she went to strip clubs in the past and this was a hobby for her, but it didn't seem like it was something that she often did. Mm -hmm. Okay. At about 2.10 a.m., surveillance video shows Tiffany getting into Michelle's car along with the other two men, and they left the area. Again, no idea why they were leaving or where they were headed. Mm-hmm. All we have is this footage of these four individuals getting into the car together and leaving from the strip club. Now, by the next day, Tiffany's family and friends couldn't get in touch with her, and they reported her missing. She's a 35-year-old woman. She doesn't need to check in with people, but her family and friends felt like this was out of character for her. And they started being very concerned for her. And one of Tiffany's friends told the police that she had been to that bar and strip club on the 7th and the 8th. So the police had a place to start. I don't know how this friend knew where Tiffany was that evening, if Tiffany had called her or Mm -hmm. if Tiffany told her these were going to be the plans. 
But regardless, the police were able to pull surveillance, which is how they were able to see that Tiffany had not been alone on the night she went missing. And she, in fact, was with these other three individuals. Right. So, again, this leads me to believe that maybe she went out and possibly was having alcohol at a bar and met some people, as, you know, can happen. Yeah, exactly. You know, she seemed like a friendly woman. It's possible she was just out having a good time, started chatting up some people. Mm -hmm. No one knows for sure if she was using drugs or alcohol that night, Mm -hmm. but we could assume she was probably at least drinking if she was at this bar and then this club. Who knows? But, you know, even on this footage, it's hard to know if these individuals were drunk. It does seem pretty clear that Tiffany did not know these individuals before this evening. Okay. Luckily, Club 205 scanned licenses upon entry, so it was very easy for the police to identify the three individuals that were seen on the video with Tiffany. And of course, they were the first people that the police wanted to speak with about Tiffany and her whereabouts. Right. Likely place. Even before they were able to locate the trio, however, Tiffany was discovered, and unfortunately, she was not alive. A passerby found Tiffany's body at the entrance to the Blue Lake Regional Park, which is located in Fairview, which is in Multnomah County. This is about 20 minutes away from the bar and the strip club where Tiffany had been last seen. Tiffany was found with a single gunshot wound to the head laying in a grassy area. This is now a homicide investigation, and now the three strangers that the police wanted to talk to are now considered suspects. I think probably not, but do we know if there's any signs of sexual assault? Will that come later? No signs of sexual assault. She was found fully clothed and there was nothing to suggest that she was assaulted. Okay. And luckily for the police, it was pretty easy to track the trio down. You see, Daniel was apprehended in California only days after Tiffany's murder and Joshua and Michelle were arrested near Kelso, Washington. Meanwhile, as police were arresting their suspect, detectives received a call from a woman saying that she heard what sounded like a gunshot between 2.30 a.m. and 3 a.m. near the entrance of Blue Lake Regional Park. This is exactly where Tiffany's body was found. So they have a timeline now. Okay. So they're able to start piecing things together. Right. And Tiffany's autopsy revealed that she had been killed by one bullet shot at close range to her head. So it seems fairly cut and dry what happened here. But which one of the three shot Tiffany and why? As the trio was brought in for their first interrogations, now, do we think they would all tell the same story? Yeah. When you asked, you know, which one of the three shot her and why? Mm -hmm. I mean, I only see two motives here. One would be a robbery Uh or the second one would be someone got angry. We got heated emotions with Mm -hmm. alcohol. Um, Something goes wrong and, and somebody kills her. So these are the really only two clear motives that I can see right at this moment. Well, now that we know there's not a sexual assault, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, and yes, but but I thought there wasn't a sexual assault anyway. I kind of thought it was going to come down to one of these two, which doesn't mean I'm right. There still could be another motive here. All right. Well, you're going to have to sit tight for that because I want to tell you a little bit about the information that came out during the interrogations. So as you could imagine, their stories varied quite a bit among these three. Joshua said that he and Michelle were having sex outside of the car and he heard Daniel and Tiffany arguing. Now, Daniel says... Daniel's story is similar at one point because Daniel says, yes, Joshua and Michelle were having sex outside of the car and him and Tiffany were just hanging out. He says, Daniel says that Tiffany begged him to shoot her. Joshua and Michelle say they didn't hear a gunshot. 
But when they went back, it was only Daniel and Tiffany was no longer there. And the three got in the car and left and they had no clue what happened to Tiffany. Right. Which seems strange. You're just going to leave this girl in this random area so that nothing's really adding up very much. There was another story that included driving to a remote area to target practice and that the shooting happened accidentally. Then Daniel said that Tiffany was acting erratic. She was yelling and acting oddly and being combative. That doesn't, none, I mean, I neither of those stories sound likely, but okay. It gets a little... But you got another I one? You got I a sure third got one? another one, yeah. Daniel would say that the couple told him to shoot Tiffany and that they observed it. Okay, so now Daniel's changing his story a bit. Everyone's kind of saying Daniel's the one who shot her. Daniel's admitting to shoot her, but at first he says it was Tiffany who was begging him. Then he says that the couple told him to shoot Tiffany and that they observed it and later congratulated him. Either way, there's no clear story here at all. We do know that the three stayed at a hotel together that night, and then the couple dropped Daniel off at a bus, and he headed back to California as the couple went on with their lives. So is the scenario likely here that she rebuffed, like, possibly advances from Daniel who got angry and shot her? Or perhaps somebody did something inappropriate and she was like, I'm not going to stand for this. And they got afraid and they were covering it up. There's no robbery, though. Is that correct? There is no robbery. She was found with her belongings. Okay. Yeah. The investigators did find that Joshua had a revolver that he was planning to sell to Daniel that I'd mentioned earlier. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting here is that the serial numbers on the weapon had been removed. Now, this could be I don't we don't know if this happened before he was going to be selling the firearm or this happened after the firearm was used to kill Tiffany. So was the firearm legally owned? Well, the serial numbers were not on it, so they couldn't you know, there was no there's no identifiers. Yeah, the firearm couldn't be identified. It did not seem that anyone had a, that they had any legal reason to carry. I'm not positive about that. I don't know what the carry laws are there. All right. But Daniel had actually told investigators during the interrogation about the numbers being rubbed off. And he also found, he also told them where they could find the gun. And this gun was, in fact, the one that killed Tiffany. But this doesn't tell police who actually pulled the trigger or importantly, why the trigger was pulled at all. But things were looking more and more like Daniel had been the culprit. As I mentioned, all the stories kind of came back to him. And he, at one point, he did admit that he was the one who pulled the trigger. So it seems like Daniel is the prime suspect here. And Michelle and Joshua would end up taking a plea that was offered to them if they testified against Daniel. And they would get a sentence of hindering prosecution, which carries a max of one year in prison. Oh. And uh, okay, sorry, this is early, but there. So I understand he's the odd man out and and maybe the most likely perpetrator, but their stories didn't match at first either. No, and they drove to the scene with four people and left with three. I mean, this deal seems really premature, mm-hmm. really light, and I'm I'm curious what corroboration they had that these two were not the perpetrators. And to make things even more interesting is that despite this plea deal, at one point, Joshua ended up confessing to the killing during an interview where he says he shot Tiffany in the forehead at close range. But his defense attorneys argued that the police should have stopped talking to him because he started contemplating out loud whether or not he should call a lawyer. So his confession would not have been allowed to be heard by a jury during trial. And the judge agreed to this. So Joshua's confession was essentially useless to the prosecution. Even if it was useless, it's still a piece of this puzzle. They're making a deal with him, assuming that he's not that culpable. I'm very perplexed by this, but okay, go ahead. I mean, I think 
It could be because Daniel admitted on the record to recklessly shooting Tiffany Jenks on October 8th, 2013. He pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter of Tiffany under, quote, circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. But unfortunately, even at the family's urging, Daniel would never say why he killed Tiffany. In fact, he didn't even make any statements at all at the sentencing hearing. I'm sorry, I'm confused. His plea, usually a plea bargain, is contingent upon an allocution, which means he's going to make a statement, a full admission to what he did. I mean, maybe part of the allocution was admitting to how he did it, but not the motive. But I would have thought some reasoning, I would have thought the prosecution would have wanted the entire story. I'm very surprised to hear there was no discussion of why this crime happened. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the circumstances were surrounding that. But by him admitting to, quote, recklessly shooting her and, you know, pleading guilty, maybe for them that was enough. But I would agree because, you know, the family was very, very vocal. In fact, many of them had a lot to say to Daniel in their victim impact statements. Remember, Tiffany had a lot of siblings. Yes. So Tiffany's brother, Brad, said in a statement, quote, you pointed a handgun at her head for the thrill of it. You shot her point blank in the head for no apparent reason other than to kill someone just to test out a gun and watch a 35-year-old woman you didn't even know die. And then he goes on to say, I can only imagine the terror she must have felt in her final moments. And it haunts me to this day. I don't understand it. Why did you do it? Tiffany's mother and other siblings also spoke of their devastation at losing such a vibrant and loving person. Another one of Tiffany's brothers said, quote, Tiffany made the world a better place. You are a cancer that has infected this world. And I find this shocking, but we see this all the time. Because Daniel took a plea, his charge was downgraded from murder to manslaughter, and he was sentenced to just 18 years. Now, if he had gone to trial, he'd be facing life in prison with, of course, the possibility of parole after 25 years, but there's no guarantee. Now he has a guarantee maxing out at 18 years. How old was he? Do we know how old he was? Daniel was 27 at the time. So he's going to be quite young. So that means he could get out the latest he's getting out discounting good behavior would be 45. Yes, and that's extremely young. I didn't hear what the family had to say about this plea as far as the sentencing goes, but I can't imagine they were content with that. I'm not sure, but... It's hard to know for the families. Again, when we talk about what justice is, maybe they wanted someone, you know, him to take responsibility, yep. whether it's 18 or 25 years for them, that might have not been relevant. Maybe it was, mm -hmm. we don't know. Yep. Maybe they just wanted to hear it, though, out loud. And for yeah. someone to take responsibility, I'm sure they were very upset with the deal cut with the other two who were involved, Michelle and Joshua. I'm sure they were quite unhappy with the plea deal struck with those, as I would be if I was a family member. Yes. I'm, I'm sure there was... There have to be a lot of mixed emotions here. And again, we never know what justice means to a family. I sincerely hope that they were consulted about this plea deal. And I hope that they were in some level not happy with it, but comfortable with it. We've also heard many times that victims' families say at the end of the day, it will not bring back their loved one. So maybe for them, yes. having so, you know, they maybe they didn't want to go through a trial. Yeah. And for them, 18 versus 25 years, for them, you know, their loved one's not coming back and they just wanted to be able to have some sense of closure and move on in any way, you know, whatever moving on would mean for them. 
Of course. So Daniel, he maxes out in October of 2031. Mm-hmm. So Daniel is currently incarcerated. Okay. In fact, he's on a few different websites. Um, you know how there's websites where you can meet inmates and you can become pen pals? Yes. Um, so there's a bunch of these where he's, you know, posts pictures of himself. He talks about how he's self-aware, he's passionate, and he's an artist. I guess he's looking for some connections for when he does get out. Very interesting. Michelle is an addiction counselor in Oregon. Now, I have no idea if she's still with Joshua, mm-hmm. but I was able to find that Joshua continued to have a few charges. He had an assault charge in 2020 in Oregon, but it looks like Michelle was able to turn things around for herself. That's good. Which is great. But, you know, unfortunately, Tiffany's family and friends, they talk about her kindness, her love for life. Actually, after her death, Megan, they collected donations in Tiffany's memory. And besides using the funds to pay for funeral expenses and legal costs for the family, any of the remaining money in the fund was donated to a scholarship to be used to send children, soldiers in Uganda to school to get a full education. This is a cause that Tiffany had expressed an interest in shortly before she died. What an outstanding way to honor her. Yeah. So there's a lot to discuss here. The first thing I want to discuss is the rarity of stranger homicides. We know that young men are more at risk than women of being murdered by a stranger. In fact, women are far more likely to be murdered by somebody known to them, often a family member, a friend, or an intimate partner. Mm -hmm. And less than 10% of all homicides are believed to be committed by a stranger. We, in other cases, we talk about this idea of stranger danger. And a lot of us children of the 80s were brought up with this idea of being fearful of strangers. Absolutely. But studying this area, we know that Stranger homicides, stranger abductions, they are considered pretty rare. They're more common among males than they are among females when females are murdered. Yeah. I mean, statistics show us that the, quote, streets are likely a far safer place for women and girls in our society than their domestic environments. Yes. Actually, I would say worldwide, the primary homicide threat to females is in domestic contexts. Yes. And as I mentioned before, Tiffany was not the victim of a sexual assault, which for me makes the situation even more rare. You didn't seem as surprised by that. I'm curious why. I'm not sure. Right away, instinctually, when you told me that the three killed her, I just didn't think it was sexually motivated. Although I wasn't sure that it wasn't like a robbery or, (laughs) again, a heated emotions. I thought about strangers, three of them drinking, possibly using substances. And I just thought something heated for some reason, you know, access to a gun. But when we I mean, when you're ready to talk about theories. I'll discuss what is a possible alternative. Okay. Um, I actually am very close to theories. The only thing I want to add, because for me, I spent a lot of time looking at the history of the defendants, particularly if any of them had a history of violence Mm -hmm. or known violence, right? We only know what is published out there. Right. Now, Daniel had an incident in New Jersey. He actually lived in South Jersey at one time. Okay. Which is interesting because we're from New Jersey. Yes. So back in 2009, Daniel was charged with aggravated assault and illegal weapon possession. And this was after he allegedly stabbed a 19-year-old Rowan student in the back of the leg during an altercation at an off-campus party. Now, in the reports that I read, he too was injured. So it is possible that this was, you know, a drunken brawl at a party. But either way, he clearly assaulted someone. He too was assaulted. But these charges were actually dropped because apparently there were many men involved in this fight and nobody wanted to testify or press charges. Interesting. So this is all I was able to find about a violent past. Again, it's possible that these three have more of a past and it's just maybe they were arrested, charges dropped, or maybe they were just never caught for crimes that they committed. But 
it's hard for me to really think about theories to explain this, assuming mm-hmm. that Daniel was the trigger person. Right. Um, without knowing much about his past, it's the only thing I can rely on here is possibly the use of substances, you know, impairing judgment. Maybe there was some sort of argument. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, this one is really, and I think that's why the family was so perplexed mm-hmm. because they nobody can understand why. Why did this happen? What led to this? Right. The motive is very unclear here, and it's very hard to speculate. Well, there were two things that I thought, and one of them was that we don't know what to what degree they were using substances and which substances they were using. If he has a history of a temper, if he has low self-control, uh, which is a theory that we've discussed before, low, uh, general theory of crime is low self-control theory, the idea that you know someone is quick quick tempered. Mm -hmm. So if there was some type of altercation or she said something that perhaps he did not like, he's got access to a gun, there's substances. He does seem to, I have a feeling there was low self-control involved here. So possibly that could explain it. The only other thing I, I, which I would not have offered Mm -hmm. was based on the victim impact statement that you said her brother gave. And that was the idea that you shot her just to kill another person. You shot her just to see her Mm -hmm. die. You wanted to test your gun. Now, I have no idea if that's based on something that he heard in the allocution. If he has some type of information that we just did not have because, you know, you couldn't necessarily locate that public record wise. But the only other thing that that brought to my mind was Jack Katz, The Seductions of Crime. And that is the idea that people don't always kill for utilitarian purposes. They kill for the thrill mm-hmm. or they it's not just about killing. It's about crime. People don't always kill for purposes we think they're going to. They might commit these crimes just because they want to, just for the thrill of it, the exhilaration it gives them, the, you know, the dopamine hit. So Based on what the brother said, I thought of that. Was this possibly even just a thrill kill? Which we clearly don't know, but that's the only other thing that came to my mind based on the victim impact statement. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And if it was a thrill kill, it's possible all three were involved and Daniel just went down for it. Sure. It's also, we can't ignore the possibility of it being accidental. I don't think that is the case here, especially because it was point blank in the head. But maybe he was kidding around, you know, I just like to explore all the possibilities. Oh, oh, you're saying kidding around, pointing a gun. I highly doubt it's accidental. I don't think that's funny. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that that is funny, but maybe, you know, no, who knows? Maybe he was threatening her like and then who who knows? Either way, he's culpable. Um, Yes. I am not thrilled about I mean, listen, it's unclear what role Joshua and Michelle played exactly. However, they did not report the fact that they went to this park with four people and they left with three. They clearly knew something terrible had happened. Did they hear a gunshot? It seems strange to me. By all accounts, they were in close proximity to Daniel, even if these two were having sex outside the car or whatever it may have been. How did they not hear that, you know, she didn't scream at all? There wasn't anything leading up to this, even if they had a silencer, they would have heard something. So it seems to me that Michelle and Joshua got off way too easily for the role that they played in this. At the very least, these two knew that this girl was murdered and they did not see fit to report Mm -hmm. this murder. They covered up for a friend. Mm -hmm. They are culpable at that at the very least. And I'm not entirely sure at all that that's the truth. Mm-hmm. I think their deal was like deals with the devil. Um, and, and I don't really think they're the devil. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think the deal is entirely inappropriate. It's way too lenient. 
And I don't think it signals justice in this case. I also am not sure that 18 years is enough for Daniel. I definitely don't think one year is enough for the role Joshua and Michelle played. And I can see why Tiffany's family and friends may not feel total peace with the way this all played out. Yeah, I I could understand this either way. On the other hand, if they are comfortable with the sentence and it brings them some comfort and, and, and an ability to move on, you know, that that's all you really can then hope for the family. What do you think about the theory that Tiffany was begging Daniel to shoot her? Utterly ridiculous. ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. Disrespectful. Let's, to let's the not even give it any more time. Yes. I do. That's very silly. I want to point out, though, that even if that was the case, and I don't believe it was, I think it's an, an outrageous claim. You can't shoot someone even if they ask you to shoot them. So that wouldn't even be a defense. No, that's not a defense. No. And I think it's a lie anyway. Yeah, so. I, I agree. That's where the case is. I urge you to read Tiffany's obituary. It really paints the picture of, you know, the kind of young woman she was and all that she had going for her. If you are interested in learning more about drug and addiction recovery, you can check out Partnerships and Addiction, DrugFree.org, Volunteers of America, Betty Ford Clinic, There are also many state-specific nonprofit organizations that do a lot of incredible work in the area of recovery and addiction. Let me also say at the end of this episode, Amy, I understand. I went through this whole episode and I can barely remember the names of the perpetrators. What they did is awful, but what stood out to me at the end is actually Tiffany. Good. The story that you told about her and what an incredible young woman she is stuck with me more than anything throughout the whole story. So I think the legacy here is her. And sometimes if there's not an action item, it is just this. It's sharing the story. It's her friend coming to us and asking us to cover her story and other people talking about mm-hmm. what an incredible woman she really was. So, you know, sometimes that's the legacy. You're right. That's a good point, Megan. And thank you for bringing that up. Um, Megan, before we go, let's end on a little bit of a positive note here. We have a question from one of our supporters, and it's a little bit of a lighthearted one. I think you'll like it. Okay. All right. You can go first, Megan. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I've always wanted to fly. Really? That's so basic. I know, but I I used to jump off my fence in my backyard and picture myself flying. And I still have dreams about that all the time that I can fly. It's like a regular theme. And it feels so real to me. You're so scared. I I don't know why. You're so scared of like airplanes, though. Like, wouldn't you be scared to fly? Totally terrified of heights. (laughs) And even sometimes in my dreams where I fly, I'm scared. But it's almost like maybe I can control my flight then, too. I don't have to go that high. It's a, it's silly, I know, for someone like me, but it's always been like a feature of my life and it is basic, so. I mean, is there like somewhere you'd want to go or you just want to be able to no. like feel free and fly? I just want to be able to get out of a situation, I don't know, <laughs> move pretty quickly. I, it's the, I think it's just the freedom of flight. I think there's something very freeing about it and I've always, I am telling you, you can't imagine how many times I jumped off my fence and like twisted ankles and Aww. stuff, like, you know, nothing serious, but just because I thought, like I really thought I could will myself to fly. Oh, and also after watching Poltergeist when I was younger, it was the little girl in Poltergeist Mm -hmm. was, what is that? She was clairvoyant. Is that, I remember she could, you know, tell things without looking at them. She knew colors without looking at them. She could see things coming. I think it's called possessed. No, (laughs) she was not possessed. Okay. You didn't watch Poltergeist. She was clairvoyant. She could see things. And for a long time, that was also something that I thought would be incredible. How about you, Amy? (laughs) Interesting. Mine's a little bit different. If I could have one superpower, it would be to never feel sick, (laughs) never get sick. You know, I'm like crazy with health stuff. I've had a real shit month. So 
Um, luckily, it was nothing life-threatening, but if I had any superpower, it would be to just snap my fingers and to not feel sick. Yeah, I could have. And you know what? While I'm at it, I don't want anyone to feel sick. So snap my fingers and make everyone feel Aww, good. Aw, but when you aren't, how do you value feeling great? You got to feel bad sometimes so that you know when you feel great. No? Okay. I, you've had a crappy oh, month. Oh, so. that's interesting. Okay. That's, that's why sometimes it's good to feel bad because then you value it next to, oh, I feel really good. And this is what the comparison yeah. is. So. Okay, fine. I'll tell you the superpower I do not want that I hear a lot of people say. I do not want to know what other people are thinking. I would not be okay with that. No, I don't either. <laughs> so agreed on no, that. And I don't want to okay. be invisible. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much for that lighthearted question. And Megan, thank you. It's good to see you today. And thank you all for listening. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Script editing is by Abigail Belcastro. Audio editing is by Siler Burr and Jose Alfonso. And music is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to follow and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as exclusive full-length episodes, lectures, a book club, and virtual happy hours with Megan and Amy. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women and crime. Sources for today's episode include Tiffany's obituary, Probable Cause Affidavit, KATU, Investigation Discoveries, The Wonderland Murders, Deadly Decision, Conversation with Tiffany's Friend Erin, Psychology Today, NJ.com, and OregonLive.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.